Welcome to the 431st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome sociologist Rashawn Ray back to COVID Calls for his third visit. As a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. In the interest of time, we're going to jump right into the conversation for today. So let me introduce my guest. Dr. Rashawn Ray is David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's also an Associate Professor of Sociology and Executive Director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland College Park. He's the author of How Families Matter, Simply Complicated Intersections of Race, Gender, and Work with Pamela Brevoid Jackson and also a most recent edition of Race and Ethnic Relations in the 21st Century, History, Theory, Institutions, and Policy, among many, many other publications. I have no idea how he sleeps. Rashawn Ray, it's great to see you again. Welcome back to COVID Calls. Hey, Scott, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. So let's start how I generally do, find out where you are and how things are looking pandemic-wise right now. Yeah, so I'm um, in, in Washington, D.C., and, um, you know, I, I would say where we are, cases have plummeted quite a bit. I mean, Omicron was a problem, but um, I think cases have dipped back down. I mean, people are adhering to mask mandates. Um, our vaccination rates are higher than other places. Um, and there's been a lot of discussions about lifting the mask mandates, which I think is supposed to happen in D.C. fairly soon. Um one of the interesting things about that is in Washington, D.C., unlike many other places around the country, in, meaning in the, in the United States, uh, Washington, D.C. actually has a vaccine mandate to go into restaurants. So it's been um, it's been, been pretty strict, but um, kids are in school and get tested uh, bimonthly. Um, at this point, I think last semester it was every week. So, um, you know, I mean, look, where, where we're located at, they're, they're pretty stringent policies. Um, and for the most part, I think, I think it's worked out for the best. So I had you on COVID calls and went back and looked. May 15th, 2020, with discussion mm. we had with Sharona Pearl. And at that time, there were 86,851 deaths in the U.S. From COVID, and we sit here 943,624 as reported today. Certainly an undercount, but that's the number that Johns Hopkins gives. I just want to reflect for you, reflect with you for a second about that that distance and yeah. what it what it means to you. And and we're not I'm not saying it's over, but you know, looking back over that stretch of time, where do you find yourself right now with COVID? Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, since that time, I mean, I've done so much research on COVID, uh, did a large report at Brookings on COVID in Detroit. And I mean, really what we found was not only that, uh, say black and Latino, um, um, community members were more likely to contract COVID and then have a family member that might've contracted COVID or died from COVID. But the biggest thing that we found are what we call the illness spillovers of COVID-19. 
the, the ways that COVID-19 is spilled over into other aspects of our lives. Of course, people know about the labor market, but for those who didn't have the ability to work from home, not only were they exposed more, but it also led to a lot of uh, fluidity in their ability to work. And uh, I mean, we saw just massive ways that COVID-19 impacted people's uh, daily lives, paying rent, putting food on the table, keeping the lights on, um, all of those sorts of things that I think some of us might take for granted because our paychecks were able to continue. Um, so those illness spillovers were were quite big. And um, and part of, I think, thinking about that is, is who was impacted by that and, and who wasn't. And, and from a policy perspective, I think it is thinking about um, what's happening in terms of um, of say the child tax credit in terms of payment protection program funding and the various ways that those sort of policies really, really help people and what it means for those policies to be inequitably distributed. So in Detroit, we found that if people had a small business in Detroit compared to out Wayne County and kind of the tri-county area, as they say in Michigan around Detroit, that people who had small businesses in Detroit were less likely to get PPP funding from the federal government. And of course, those businesses overwhelmingly were predominantly black businesses that were less likely to get it. And then when they did, they got less money. Um, so that's just a way that inequality persists. Um, I also think about uh, not only the PPP funding, but the way that testing and vaccines were rolled out and the inequities there. And so, you know, I, I think I think it's, it's concerning moving forward about where we are as a nation um, and in terms of what is happening in the United States, in terms of being prepared for various sorts of disasters or kind of shocks that hit uh, people's lives. You know, it's been such a, a multifaceted disaster, but just to, to stick with one part of what you're saying, I mean, under a sort of normal model of common sense, you would think, okay, well, you know, you've have you have these findings, like the interesting ones you were just talking about. So that tees up policy reform. Then then now yeah. you sort of move that into the legislative process because we would believe in general that um, when you find structural inequality in something like emergency management or disaster response, you address it. What's your confidence level that that process is working right now? <laughs> um, not that much at all. And the reason why is because so there was a report, a report that came out of Johns Hopkins um, a little before the pandemic started, actually, maybe like a year or two before. And it was talking about who was prepared for um, a pandemic, actually, is what the report was discussing. And it showed that the United States, in terms of healthcare spending and resources, was number one. But when it came to being prepared, well, um, the United States was actually lower than. Um, some countries in in Africa, some countries in South America and Central America. And I think for some, that's shocking. I mean, to others who've traveled around the world, maybe not much so. But the point is, if you spend the most in funding, if you have the most in funding and you're spending and you have the most resources, then it seems you should be prepared. But what it speaks to is the ways that the United States of America um, are inequitable. And the inequality is what it is. Yeah, if you have health care and your health care is good, I mean, shoot, life can be good. I mean, you can go to the doctor and it doesn't mean that those that some of those people didn't die of that large number that you highlighted. But what it did, did mean is on average, the people who are most likely to die 
were the people who were kind of on the margins and the fringes of our healthcare system in terms of having access to healthcare to begin with. And to me, that is one of the saddening things about the United States of America in terms of where we are right now and what that means for the country. Just a quick reminder to folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Rashawn Ray today. And so let's talk about uh, Black Lives Matter. And I actually had the chance the second time we talked was was right after George Floyd had been murdered. So of guests I've had on, you had the shortest interval between two visits. You were in episode 45 and then, and then you were kind enough to come back only uh, 10 episodes after that. and And at that point, we were trying to make sense of what was going on. There's been some time has passed since then. And I wanted to reflect with you on the, the ways that in that spring and summer of 2020, the, the call for justice, the Black Lives Matter movement merged with the call for justice with COVID for a period of time. I, I don't know if yeah. you accept that characterization, but to me, it, I mean, it became one big disaster and there was some hope in the system, I think. And I wonder how you assess that now. Have those two disasters disaggregated themselves now? We've gone back to the way things were before George Floyd was murdered. I guess I'm trying to take stock of where BLM is now in light of where we are with COVID. Yeah, so I think it's a couple of things. I think first, um, we've experienced what I call multiple pandemics. And part of thinking about those multiple pandemics is that not only did it include COVID-19, but police brutality and systemic racism, all of them have came to bear and have led to uh, a racial awakening and then a backlash. And I think that's where we are now um, with discussions about critical race theory and in 2021 about defund the police that, you know, both of these became these, uh, and the, these boogeymen of sorts to try to classify and categorize people and their attitudes and their views. And, and that backlash has been strong. And that backlash is to oftentimes preserve the inequality that got us here. Um, and January 6th, of course, I'm talking about the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. That event of those domestic terrorists storming the U.S. Capitol, um, I think, encapsulated all of this where the type of police response, I want people to think about, imagine if, <laughs> imagine if people who look like me storm the Capitol. I mean, we would be having a very, very different discussion. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that the level of military and law enforcement responses would have been to the moon and back. And what's the evidence of this? Well, we know in 2020, in summer 2020, when there was actually a peaceful protest in what is now Black Lives Matter Plaza, that Mayor Muriel Bowser in Washington, D.C. put in place because Trump sent um, the individuals that he was able to control uh, as part of law enforcement and the military to actually arrest the individuals who were protesting. The responses were significantly different. One was um, 
um, overwhelmingly a nonviolent protest. The other one was overwhelmingly violent. And even though after January 6th, 700, or I believe over 700 people have been arrested, um, at the time, those thousands of people overwhelmingly just walked away and they used surveillance footage, uh, primarily the Department of Justice, to um, to end up arresting individuals. So, you know, I think it's important for people to note that in the U.S., I think in other parts around the world as well, but particularly the U.S. based on uh, the legacy of um, of enslavement of black people in the U.S., that the U.S. has a tendency to yin yang. That whenever there is a large percentage of people, particularly a, a growing percentage of white Americans who are like, what the heck are we doing? We have to get this right. There mm. is a yin yang effect. And when that yin yang happens, it is to suppress thought. It is to suppress um, truth. It is to suppress people's ability to um, to try to create more opportunities for others. And we're seeing that with um, notions about critical race theory, which is simply a as you know, a, a framework that's primarily in legal studies to, to highlight the ways that uh, that U.S. social institutions are embedded with race, with racism within its laws, its policies, its procedures. Um, but it's being framed as something quite different, quite differently. And it's led to the banning of books. It's led to the chilling effect on teachers. It's led to uh, various sorts of outcomes that is part of the backlash to this racial awakening. And, um, you know, I, I think we just continuously see history repeat itself. I mean, Black Lives Matter has done some amazing work. And, and in fact, I mean, we have to kind of think about this moment. Roughly 10 years ago, Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman. I mean, that is what started the Black Lives Matter movement. And when we think about that, part of it is making sense of the fact that uh, there's been a lot of progress made in terms of knowledge in terms of cultural changes, and also in terms of policy changes. But those changes can be withered away. And I think kind of the nail in the coffin or one big one on police brutality would have been the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that failed um, in Congress, that the House of Representatives passed twice. Of course, um, Democrats mm -hmm. control the House of Representatives. The Senate is split. And I mean, it never even came up for a vote. And I think that speaks to political polarization in the United States of America. There's this backlash that you're describing, and I, I really appreciate, appreciate the way you describe it, which is that when you have a movement that emerges and a large number of white people are marching as well or taking action in some way, that that provokes a particularly strong backlash. Is there silver lining in that, though, that that still the sort of baseline evidence is there that you had a large number of Americans, maybe larger than ever white, white Americans who were trying to, maybe solidarity is too strong. I hope it's not, but they're trying to find common cause and actually get in the fight. I mean, is there still something, because I think about that in the context of COVID too. I mean, the anti-vax and anti-maskers get a lot of airtime, but the reality is, is still the great majority of Americans have gotten vaccinated have followed rules, have cared about one another. And I don't want to lose that. I wonder about that other piece with Black Lives Matter. Yeah, I think, um, yes, I, th I think solidarity is an appropriate word. Um, I I'll tell you how I think about it in terms of a hierarchy that might be useful for people. I think solidarity is an appropriate word because I think um, 
is one of the lowest categories that we can be at. Um, solidarity means that you you might sympathize or slightly can empathize, but oftentimes it's just sympathy. But above solidarity, you have allyship. These are people who um, who know that it's important to try to do more. They're just trying to make sense of it. But what I hope that has been built, and I think it has to a certain extent, not just among young people, but I think across the age gradient, are what I call racial equity advocates and brokers, and also what others have called accomplices. Accomplices are individuals who are willing to put their privilege on the line to address racism and discrimination. Racial equity advocates are individuals who know that they can't simply sit around and be silent because their silence is viewed as acceptance, but instead they speak up and speak out when their family members, their friends, their coworkers do or say something racist. And then when you're a racial equity broker, you take it to the next level and you actually broker policies, regulations, rules, laws, and procedures that are racially equitable. And a lot of that means looking at our own neighborhoods. I mean, there are neighborhoods still in the United States that have like restrictive covenants on the books that even if it's not being implemented, it's very de facto. Like take take New Brunswick, Georgia, where Ahmad Arbery was running down the street, young 20 year old, uh, you know, 20 something running down the street who was murdered by three white men who were tracking him in a, in trucks. I mean, the same thing just happened to a black delivery person. These neighborhoods, people can change that. There are people I, I have to believe growing up in Atlanta, growing up in Georgia, that there are people in that area who do not by any means think that that was OK. But you know what many of them did? They were silent about it. And what we need is more white people to shift. See, when, when, you, when you're in solidarity, you can be silent. When you're an ally, you can also be silent. When you're an accomplice, when you're an advocate, when you're a broker, you're no longer silent. You speak mm -hmm. up. You interrogate what's going on. And I think that shift is happening. And I think there are white people who are trying to figure that out. But that's what we need. The same way that it's going to take men to finally ameliorate patriarchy and hegemonic masculinity, it takes white people to finally deal with racism. Um, and I think whenever we get really, really close, there are these narratives that pop out that, that just have a way of putting a chilling effect on people who want to speak up and speak out. And oftentimes it's targeting their jobs and those sort of things. So just to bring it back to critical race theory for a second and, and how we build a nation of racial advocates, um, brokers, accomplices, powerful concepts. So that means when the local school board says, yeah, we, we're going to take Maya Angelou out of the library because we don't we think those that might make white children feel bad or whatever, you know, book of the day has made the list. What kind of action should people be taking? I mean, I guess I'm asking you for for your advice in this regard, because I think this is a great example of what you're talking about. You can think that the tax on critical race theory is is stupid, reactionary, wrong, and then sort of say, well, you know, that's okay. I'm not school anymore. And I guess those kids will get that information mm -hmm. at some point. You know, it's it's one mm -hmm. of these classic examples where it's like, that's a terrible thing. Okay, now I have a meeting I have to get to. So how do you right, work right. through on that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think, um, so, I mean, I think it's a few things going on. I mean, yeah, I, I think when it comes to critical race theory, 
the analysis we've done, my one of my colleagues at Brookings, Alexandra Gibbons, we did this analysis of of critical race theory legislation. And what we found is overwhelmingly hardly none of them explicitly mentioned critical race theory. They're fine. They finally been getting around to it, particularly for school systems. But at the state level, they really didn't. What they were doing was they were trying to ban any discussion about uh, racism, um, diversity, inclusion, belonging, unity, even discussions about sexism and homophobia were being attacked. Um, and of course, then it led to the banning of books. I think what people have to recognize is how it impacts them is that means we're, we're going to have less empathetic and racially equitable people we're going to work with. Um, it's going to also potentially lead to history repeating itself. And I think part of thinking about that is we continuously see that history repeating itself. Um, and I think what people can do is I think they can think about not only the places where they choose to send their kids to school, but also they could think about, again, how they speak up. And they can also think about the gifts they give. Um, when people give a gift and, and it's a book, think about the cover next time. Think about what the topic is. Think about if if it's actually something that someone would read and, and then think about how they're moved. Like as an example, my fifth grader is reading a book. It's called um, Rolling Thunder, Hear My Cry. And it's a, it's a historical book about, you know, the way that racism in society with families um, he's really been talking about it. Some people would try to say this critical race theory. No, it's not. It's just a book about the history in the United States and the way racism played a role in it. And I think it's important for kids to have these kind of conversations and talk about where he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, they were trying to tell the black people to go to the back of the bus. Like, and it led to this broad discussion, not just about Rosa Parks and what she did, but about why they were trying to relegate black people to the back of the bus. And then how we have to reinforce how we have to ensure that doesn't happen again. That's not critical race theory. That is just having a critical conversation about the way that racism is manifested in society. And we are all better for it if we ensure that those types of conversations happen. I want to take just a moment here and we have a few minutes left and and ask you about the research agenda that you're like what's on the top two or three things the research agenda for you right now and particularly again sort of coming to a new phase of COVID and so issues like health inequality and 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 I want to I guess I still don't want to give up on this idea that the sort of combination of disasters Provide, was terrible, is terrible, but it also provides a sort of crucial moment to bring a new kind of analysis to racial inequality. Mm -hmm. And I sort of wonder, you know, as we move into 2022, what's on the top of your research agenda? Yeah, I think it's a few things. I think first I have a, a book coming out, I guess technically it's out, called Systemic Racism in America. And it's an edited volume of scholars that have been invited to, to the University of Maryland over the past decade um, that talk about everything from sociological theory and uh, critical race theory um, to thinking about education inequality and social change. So that's first on my mind. I think second on my mind is um, is the work that I've been doing on on police reform and working on this book to get out about the way that bad apples come from rotten trees and policing and highlighting the way that the system plays a role in that. And then I think third, is some work that I've been collaborating on with some some um, other scholars looking at really these illness spillovers of police violence that impact health outcomes, where um, I was giving a presentation, um, a talk earlier today um, at like virtually at Yale. And I was looking at one of the images that I show from 20. Uh, 
It was from 2014, I think. So eight years ago of what was happening in Ferguson. And I was looking at that picture and it looked like a war zone. And I was reflecting on that image in light of what I've been seeing about what's happening in Ukraine, which is just is just gut riching to any time you see people who are being attacked, uh, particularly people who are innocent, who are trying to live their lives. When I put all that together, I'm like, those similar sort of war zones exist in the United States, oftentimes in predominantly black, low income communities, so much so that refugees who have came to the U.S. after their areas have been bombed, that have moved to St. Louis and Detroit and other places, have said, I actually want to go back home and live in that war zone because this one is even worse. And I think that speaks to the inequality that exists in the United States that that most people never see. They think they know about it and they think they know why it's happening. They think that it's something about the people who live there without understanding that that sort of setup. And I, I want to leave people with this. There's a statement. Everyone knows it. You know, crabs in a barrel. Everybody always talks about how the crabs are fighting, how they're doing all this stuff, how they're in the how they're in the barrel and they get into it. And that that's where people throw out these narratives, black on black crime or, you know, mm-hmm. infighting among groups. But nobody ever thinks that the barrel is not the crab's natural habitat. Nobody ever thinks to take the crabs out the barrel. Nobody ever thinks to disrupt the barrel. The barrel is the system that is holding them in there, that where it's blinding them, where they can't see beyond that barrel. And we never think about that system. And that's part of what's happening now is people are becoming uh, awoken, in a sense, to the impact of the barrel. And that's what we have to dismantle to allow people to have the ability to do what they need to do. Talking with Rashawn Ray, professor of sociology at the University of Maryland, who also has just been awarded the 2022 Monty L. Bomek Award for Public Engagement with Science from the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And congratulations on that. You deserve every honor, my friend. Uh, <laughs> your, your work in this time has just been absolutely crucial. I think a North Star for those of us um, who want to do more than solidarity and be in, in uh, some of these other uh, more active categories that we were talking about uh, and trying to, and we need the work to understand where to go. So thank you for well, that. You are, man. Look, you, you are, it's been great collaborating with you. It has been, I, I mean, the, the number of days you've continuously done this from all over the world <laughs> is, is super impressive. And um, it's been my pleasure to be able to come on and I'm glad that, that I'm able to be here um, on this day as well. So thank you so much for the invitation and I look forward to hearing what's up next. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. Thanks, Rashawn.